Hello, and welcome to the 40 Drinks Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McLaughlin. Sometime around our 40th birthday, many of us start to feel what I've started calling the ick. Like something in our life doesn't really fit anymore and you don't know what to do about it. I know that was true for me, and I made quite a mess of it if I'm being honest. But having 40 drinks with 40 people over the course of a year helped me escape the influence of that ick. On this podcast, I welcome you to tap into my stories and experience, as well as those of my guests, to help you emerge from your ick and maybe even avoid some of the mistakes we made along the way. Today, my guest is Paula Conroy, who uses the ancient indigenous wisdom of traditional rites of passage to help people make their way through the transitions we face at different points in our lives. Her goal is for people to move from one stage to the next in a really healthy way. Hi, Paula. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Stephanie. It's wonderful to see you today. Likewise. I am really interested to have a conversation with you today because you are one of few people who admit to being really excited about turning 40. (laughs) I haven't encountered that quite as often, so I'm very excited to hear how you got there. Why don't we back up a few years and tell me a little bit about your formative adult years? What got you to your mid-30s where our story will begin? Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Stephanie. And yes, indeed, I was actually very excited to turn 40, which was not common amongst many of my friends either. I feel that that desire within me started from a early age when I moved out of university and I moved from South Africa to London and I started working in banking. 22 was when I began in banking. I felt all the way through my career in banking, especially in those younger years during my 20s, was that I was always the younger person. I was always the little one. I never felt like, well, I mean, I obviously didn't have that much experience yet and I didn't really know exactly what I was doing, if I'm brutally honest. But there was always the sense in those years and those younger sort of maiden years of my life of wanting to find my place within the whole and wanting to find my place within the work. And the work that I did back then was super exciting. I mean, like I was part of this global engine and learning about all these global corporates. And it was really fantastic. I mean, I met so many interesting people, but I was always the younger, and dare I say, woman in the team. I think in that London phase of my career, especially probably like 25 to 28, I was one of two female salespeople across a team of 27 people. So there was very few women and of that, very few people that were under 30. So I always felt young for my age group. And look, to be honest, my whole life, most of my best friends are all a good five or six years older than me. And some are even 15. My very best friend now, she's 58 now. So I've got lots of friends who are older. So I've kind of always felt a kinship with people five plus years older than me. And Mm -hmm. so then when I moved from London to Sydney, Australia, and carried on working in Australia, I sort of transitioned through into my 30s and took on increasingly larger leadership roles within the organization, you know, taking over a country head role of looking after the client management team here in Australia of the corporate institutional client management team. Then there was this experience that I had of really feeling in my flow. I had enough experience to know what I was doing and everything felt great, but I was also in that child rearing phase of my life. 
So those early 30s, I had my two beautiful children and continued working through that period of time. But all the while, I kept having this internal experience, whether that was what was perceived on the external, I'm not sure. But internally within me, there was always the sense of like, I haven't yet found my place. I need a few more gray hairs before I can actually hold some sense of authority in this arena. There's still a part of me that doesn't feel worthy of the job that I've got or doesn't feel like she's Mm -hmm. quite there yet. This Mm -hmm. sort of wounded maiden in me was quite prevalent during that part. And even though I had wonderful success within my career and I certainly did great things, which I'm proud of, there was also this part of me that was kind of a bit stuck and standing in the way and Mm. kind of telling me things that weren't necessarily true, I suppose, but were Mm. pointing me towards a part of me that needed my attention, that needed to be brought into the wholeness of the individual that I was in the moment in order to be fully expressed as a woman in her 30s. But that didn't really come in an easy way. I kind of got agitated around about 35, knowing that there was something calling for my attention. So that's kind of what led me through to that point of recognizing that I wanted to be older, even though I was younger, but that indeed I couldn't step into those older years into that maturity until I had worked with this part of me that was still wounded and trapped in her immaturity trapped in her unwhole place, so to say. So a couple of things. Number one, you've said a couple of times maiden. Mm. So will you just give me some context for how you're using that word in this conversation? Yeah, beautiful. So your listeners may be familiar with different archetypes. And there's three primary archetypes that I work with, especially when I'm working with women and when I'm working with the journey of feminine consciousness. And that's the maiden, the mother and the crone. To briefly just touch on each of those, the maiden comes into her being when she transitions into her adolescence, so from child into young adult. She transitions into adolescence and that's sort of the springtime of her life. It's the exploration, it's the up and out, it's the seeking, it's the trying on different hairstyles, trying on different hair colors, trying on different clothes, trying on different partners, all those sorts of things to try and discover who she is. Mm -hmm. So it's almost trying a whole lot of things on, putting a whole lot of things on to know what to take off. What do I want to be Mm -hmm. left with? What actually resonates deeply with me? But often in that process of the maiden putting things on and taking things off, it's quite a lot of wounding that can happen as we discover the things that we don't want. And we realize we have experiences that land on us being potentially tarnished or scarred or traumatized in some way, shape or form, as little or as big as that might be for us individually. So we have things that happen during those maiden years. We don't yet have the maturity. We don't yet have the know-how. We don't yet have the years of life and experience to be able to digest those wounds from our youth in a healthy way and integrate them fully into our being so that we can continue to show up in the present moment fully present. Those maiden years then should move in a really healthy way through a rite of passage into the mother archetype. And the mother archetype doesn't necessarily mean a biological mother. The mother archetype is all the characteristics and the traits that are embodied by a really healthy mother frequency. And we know what Mother Earth is like. If she's healthy, she's operating beautifully. We know Mother Nature, she's infinitely diverse. She's inclusive. She goes through her cycles. That connection to that mother frequency is what can be termed the full summertime of our life, this 
this time mm-hmm. of our full bloom when we have tried on and taken things off and now here we are showing up in our full bloom and yet we have so many women who aren't in their full bloom we're still trapped in those wounds of our mother years and then we'll move through from the mother years into the maga years and the crone years which are sort of the wise elder years the autumn and the winter of our lives where we take on that role of not necessarily so actively doing as we would in the mother years but we take on a much wiser role a much more sort of passive role and yet there is this extraordinary amount of wisdom that we can share through our storytelling, share through our experiences. And that wisdom of the crone, these archetypes live in us always. The maiden, the mother, the maga, and the crone are living within us always. But our literal biological years would dictate where we are at on that spectrum. So we can pull on the wisdom from the crone and we can pull out the rebel genius of the maiden and all of her energy when we need it. But our whole journey of the feminine consciousness, our journey of being a woman is all about arriving at the place where we are right now and being able to fully show up in the archetype, in the stage, in the age of where we are right now, being fully expressed, recognizing our gifts and talents, healing our wounds. Okay. All right. That's a great setup. Let's go back to what you were talking about. Around age 35, you started feeling, you called it an agitation. Can you describe to me what that agitation felt like and how it expressed itself? Yeah, for sure. So that agitation was showing up in many ways in my life, generally pointing towards misalignment or discontent. I had two small children at home and I was working this really big job that required a lot of time from me. And I kept feeling this tug on my heart around, wow, my time's going into my work and yet I've got these two small children at home and my heart wants to be there and yet my life is here. It was showing up with gut health issues. I was experiencing a lot of pain in my gut and I worked with a friend of mine who's a health coach to heal that process, but really showing up with tension. She did a number of different tests and she was like, oh my gosh, you know, your gut health is not great at all. And that was quite startling, like, wow, a bit of a health alarm. And then it was showing up just in my general melancholy. I remember distinctly arriving home one evening after a long day at work. It had been a really busy day and I walked in through the front door. And usually I was so excited to see the children. And I walked in through the front door and I could hear them in the one room. And I sort of melted away from that room. And I went upstairs and I heard my husband in another room. And I melted away from him and I kind of found myself in the corner of the room going, wow. I don't want to see anyone right now. I I feel like I'm in a little fight or flight response right Mm. now. I I don't even want to run and embrace my children and my husband. And that was quite shocking for me. I was like, something's not right here. Something's not working here. Do you know that then prompted long conversation with my husband and how to start turning towards the possibility of being able to disentangle myself. First, it was the practical side, the financial side and that sort of thing from my job. But for me, the biggest sort of disentangle or dissolution came with me being willing and able and building my capacity to be able to step away from something that I was quite attached to, even though there was this whole raft of issues that were showing up in my life that were pointing towards the fact that this is not where I'm meant to be anymore. I was Mm -hmm. still very attached. There was this part of me that was quite codependent or very codependent on my identity that was wrapped up in this long career in banking, the potential career path that was available to me should I choose it. My teams and all the work I'd done with them over the previous 14 or seven years when I'd been looking after those teams and all the work that was still to come and the exciting things that were coming. So there's quite a big ego identity that 
I was very attached to that was a difficult thing to pick apart. And that took time. I had to build the capacity to be able to be willing to let go of this part of me that was very attached to being someone important with this career and with all these things, all the kind of, you know, bells and whistles and saying, wow, I need to turn away from something that I'm attached to that I know is not right for me in order for me to go through what's going to be a pretty difficult winter, pretty difficult journey through the dark night of letting go of the old in order for the new to be birthed within me. And I really experienced that as a rite of passage, as a transition from that stage of life into the life that I've now created. That passage, though, is what I'm really interested in because it can be so overwhelming. For many people, it's not just the job that's breaking down and maybe it's the marriage or the relationship or where they live or any number of things. So help me understand, and I don't know if this was work you did on your own or work you did with your husband, but how did you make practical steps towards understanding that you were really attached to this job for ego reasons versus, well, ego and practical financial reasons. How did you start disentangling yourself from that in really practical terms? Yeah, honestly, it it is a big journey. And I mean, the toolkit that I have, fortunately, is quite vast. Having been in these areas of personal development for a very long time and setting up the mindfulness program at HSBC and having a strong practice for myself, a lot of this process is about developing a relationship with one's own mind with one's own ego, the way in which it functions. And life is always pulling us outside, getting us to attend to the doing of life and not the being of life. And that's indicative of this sort of masculine culture that we live in with the masculine within all of us. And again, I'm just going to be clear that I'm not saying men and women. I'm going to talk about masculine and feminine, which lives in all of us. The masculine is part of us that can really do and get stuff done. And the feminine is this part of us that feels and is rooted in our being. And this exists in both men and women and all genders of all nature. You know, this discussion Mm -hmm. around gender is such an interesting one. When we pull it away from being a man or a woman or somebody in between, it's actually, well, these feminine and masculine traits live in all of us. And we are predisposed. And certainly I was predisposed and trained into doing Just keep doing more, keep yourself busy, keep focusing on what the next thing is, have a plan, have a list, focus, get stuff done, ding, 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 ding. And that's how I was trained from being a little girl. I mean, this is Mm -hmm. just the culture that we all live in. So this transition from doing into being is one of the biggest ones that we can make is how do we create intentional space for us to learn how to develop a relationship with our minds? And for me, the the most practical and valuable step in all of that is to find some kind of reflective practice that resonates with self. So that might be a meditation. It might be a journaling practice. It might be a consistent walk in nature. Anything that resonates with the individual that is leaving the phone behind, putting the phone on silent in another room, because that's the biggest attention-grabbing tool we have in our lives. And all of us love our phones. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to give up my phone. It's just our relationships with our phones are not healthy. We're too attached to them, myself included, to my own degree. 
degrees. So to have some kind of practice in place that somebody can cultivate and recognizing that starting anything new, like learning a musical instrument or starting exercise, it's going to be difficult in the beginning. There's going mm -hmm. to be resistance in the body to do it. There's going to be resistance in our being to do it. For me, even now, like my practice goes in and out and in and out as I can see the ego part of me resisting change and not wanting to go there. And then this inner part of me is calling for it. And I can feel the conflict that happens within me. It's all about this inflow and outflow of our experience of our relationship to ourselves. But somehow one has to find a way to develop a relationship with one's own mind. For me, I was fortunate to have many practices to support me, but that's not to say that it happened with a whole lot of grace and ease. I can tell you there were some fireworks in my house. My husband and I had some really rocky discussions, really rocky times. We really stretched ourselves into the corners because of the implications of what it would mean if I were to change my life for our family, for our finances, for our children, for us as a couple, for me and my time. He wanted me to do something different because he wanted me out of this kind of hyper-masculine side of me that was gone all week and traveling a lot and back at home with the family and being able to reimagine myself in the feminine side of me. But I didn't even know what that was. I had no idea what that even meant. So in that process, he was pulling and tugging me in one direction and I was resisting him as a mirror reflection for what I was actually resisting in myself. So my invitation would be is that if we can get practical and create intentional spaces for us to allow ourselves to not be practical, to just be. And that can just be as little as five or 10 minutes a day of sitting with one's feet on the sand or the grass or in a park or under a tree, you know, or with a journal and a pen or with a silent practice or something like that, where we can just begin to pay attention to the ways in which our minds were operating. I started to see how attached I was to my identity. And that in itself was quite a shocking experience. It was like, oh my gosh, Paula, geez, look at this. You need them to feel good about yourself. You need this title to give you some sense of self-worth. That's painful to come into that realization of like, oh my gosh, I've placed my power outside of myself all the way through by needing something on the external in order for me to feel some sense of self-worth, to validate and justify. And even I think turning 40 for me was even that. I'm going to place my worth on this age. And when I turn 40, all will be well, because now I'll finally mm. be old enough to feel worthy enough to have a voice in the world. And all of that are just mirror reflections of like, oh, where am I not actually fully giving myself the credence and the self-worth that I should intuitively have, and yet I'm disconnected from that version of myself. So... Yeah, the practice yeah. of some kind of practical process, some masculine practical process to create the container within which we can just be, we can create that safety for ourselves to relax into this relationship with ourselves, this intimacy with ourselves and allow it to be an onion that it's not necessarily going to be on the first time we sit under the tree or walk on the beach. There's a process that we go through all the time. It's an iterative process. And if we can stay the course and trust in that wisdom that we know is happening inside of us, that's calling us to that feeling being part of us, we can trust that we're going to get there. It's just going to happen in its own time. And it's up to us then to hold that safety of that practical container, that strength of that container in order to be able to get there. And that's really what we do with rites of passage a lot is we create, especially, you know, I work with women, but I also work with the Rites of Passage Institute where we run camps for children transitioning into young adulthood with their parents, as well as with the leadership trainings to create 
a container of safety within which people can feel safe enough to become unsafe within themselves, to go into parts mm -hmm. of themselves that they haven't felt and that they feel mm -hmm. that strength of the container and the community around them to be able to let go of all the things that we're holding on to all the time just to keep it together and to keep moving forward. How can we create that safety to just allow ourselves to relax and to feel? Oh my goodness. I think keeping it together is highly overrated. Oh, totally. <laughs> I'm one person who, who that served and I'd love to have a chat with them. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. I just want to back up a couple of steps and just underline something that you said. You said, um, oh, and now I'm not going to get it perfectly. You said we're looking outside of ourselves for something that gives us our self-worth. And I think that is a place where a lot of people get stuck. I have a picture in my head right now. It's like as if you had one foot on a dock and one foot on a boat and the boat was slowly floating away. So your legs are going wider and wider. And when you put that credence or that weight or that value in the something external, you're never in control. You're always at the mercy of, and I wonder if that's where things like imposter syndrome come from, but jumping back onto the dock and being someplace where, where your footing is solid is sort of a visual for then having that inside yourself, that worth, that knowing inside yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I fully hear you on that. And yes, if I look at the work we do with children, for example, or the children transitioning into young adults, the rites of passage framework, which has been coined by indigenous cultures for millennia involves a very important step, which we call the honoring, which is the last phase where within the community, there's a reflection back at this young adult, this child transitioning into young adulthood. And that doesn't necessarily mean it only has to happen for children transitioning into young adulthood. It can happen right now where we bring in what we call the honoring. And that honoring is there for community to be able to reflect back to the individual, the unique gifts and talents that that individual has and have the opportunity to connect these young adults to their unique gifts and talents. So they don't keep looking outside for the answers that communities there at this very impressionable age, really honoring these beautiful qualities and characteristics of these young adults. And often on these camps, when the honoring comes around, and I get all emotional every time I think about it, because it's so beautiful, where so often these children are sitting on our little honoring throne, and the or these young adults, and the parents sits in front of them being witnessed by the community, telling this beautiful young person, all the wonderful things that they love about them. And these young adults, their faces and the way they receive and just the glow that comes from being seen in this intentional way by their parent, by those around them, their community, it imprints so deeply in their being that they know something happens in that moment. But unfortunately, we've got a youth worshiping culture. We don't adhere or, or celebrate all of these facets of maturity, the facets of the wisdom of the elders, the facets of the maturity of the mother, the facets of the maturity of midlife. You know, midlife mm. is such an incredibly potent phase of life. We've still got energy. We've got enough stripes on our shoulders. We've been through enough experiences of life to have garnered enough wisdom in our being, embodied wisdom in our being, to be deeply rooted in a very mature part of ourselves. And yet we arrive in the stage of our life and we feel 
uncertainty, doubt, self-worth issues because our culture hasn't supported us from when we were transitioning into our young adulthood and all the way through. It's just media, you know, this is what it should be. Mm -hmm. This is what the perfect life should be, et cetera, et cetera. And we're not rooted in that truth yet for ourselves. We don't go through those rites of passage to reconnect us to that sovereignty and that inner knowing that Mm. gives us the capacity then to be able to show up and vision for a new way forward in the world. Hi, we'll get back to Paula in just a minute. This is where I usually interrupt to ask you to look down at your phone and either rate or share the podcast. It's super easy. Just tap on the stars. (laughs) But today I want to tell you about a two page guide I created that will help you diagnose whether you or someone you love is suffering from what Paula describes as agitation and what I have been calling the ick. This short guide outlines the symptoms and red flags associated with the ick, which often signals the beginning of this midlife transition. You can download it from my website, 40drinks.com slash ick, spell out the word 40, so that's 40drinks.com slash I-C-K. Okay, back to Paula, who's gonna talk a little bit about the traumatic experience that sent her down a personal growth path. I want to come back to rites of passage in a couple of minutes because I'm very interested in this, but I want to come back to your story. One thing that you said to me as you were in this phase of agitation was that you felt like you were stuck in a younger version of yourself. Can you tell me what that felt like or how you knew you were stuck? Yeah. Well, I had an experience, interestingly, on the solstice of 2019, where I came up with my children to stay with a friend of mine. I was still living in Sydney at that time, staying with a friend of mine who lives in a beautiful, very rural part of the Northern Rivers here in Northern New South Wales. And I had an experience where I was taking my children and it's no cell phone reception. There's no Wi-Fi. We're in the middle of nowhere. There's composting toilets. It's been a sanctuary for me, this beautiful place in nature. And my husband was doing an event down in Sydney and he was going to join us later. I took my children there were four and six at the time up this creek there's a beautiful creek that runs through the property but it was when the australian fires were on i'm not sure if you remember that time but there's horrific mm-hmm. fires so it was super dry there was no water water hadn't been running through the rivers for a very long time and the river was very sedimenty so the rocks were all quite slippery and my son could jump from rock to rock but my daughter was requiring some assistance as we were heading up this creek and my son got to a rock and climbed on top of this rather large rock and i picked up my daughter Daughter, and I put her on top of the rock and for the life of me I have no idea what happened but I put her on the rock and the next thing I know I'm head down in the rocks below me my sunglasses oh. have broken into my face you can't quite see but I've got all these scars oh. on my forehead here and I don't know what happened but from putting her on the rock either I blacked out or I slipped so fast that I don't even know and I came to and my head was just gushing and my children were up on the rock they're looking down on me and it was just chaos and it had to be this this moment for me of like wow I'm in trouble now I'm on my own in the middle of nowhere no one knows I'm up this river with my two small children and I need to really burrow down into that warrior woman within me because I need to get us all to safety and so it was right okay I'm bleeding I've got glass around my eye all these sorts of things were happening let me just get the children and get ready so 
burrowed down into, right, darlings, mommy's had a little accident, so now I'm going to need your help. And da, 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 you know, really kind of buckled up and reached that part of me and managed to get us all the way up, got to the car, tied a dishcloth around my head, got the children into the car, drove us all the way to the nearest ER and got myself cleaned up and stitched up. But as a result of that experience, the what ifs that were flowing through my head, the, oh my gosh, what if, what if you'd been knocked unconscious? What if the children couldn't get down? What if, what if, what if? It was just, I was kind of stuck in these loops and very affected by what had happened in that experience. And I had the good fortune of having the resources to be able to see a therapist for mm -hmm. a block of time. And in that experience, she did lots of journey work with me, linking me back to experiences that had happened in my past. And through that, I uncovered some pretty big experiences that happened to me during my teen years that I realized were totally contracted in my life. And as I went through the journey of meeting that part of myself, meeting that experience again, I hadn't wanted to look at that experience. I hadn't wanted to go there. I just kind of put it down and moved on with my life, which is what we were taught to do. Mm -hmm. Just get on with things, carry on, keep yourself busy, which is all very wrong advice. Don't keep yourself busy. Feel the feelings. Stay and feel what needs to be felt. Walk through the stages of the trauma when it's happening, you know. It's really important, even with death. I'm a trained death walker, which means I can walk through the stages of death with somebody in a really healthy way, not get stuck because we're scared to feel the depth of that feeling. So in that experience of going into these parts of myself, these younger versions of myself, and recognizing that, wow, as I sought to release the contractions that were really stuck around those experiences, those those experiences could then integrate and I could feel a nervous system reset happening. Every time I uncovered another part of this previous version of myself, this younger version of myself, this maiden version of myself that got stuck somewhere along the line and didn't walk through those stages of her experiences fully and completely and digest them completely, that those experiences then show up. In, in contracted reactions mm -hmm. in my present day moment. So I'm reacting mm -hmm. from the wounded young version of myself that I was. Mm -hmm. And as I uncovered all of that, there was just oh, relief and relief and relief. And I felt my whole nervous system defragging. And it was then that just after 2019, that was the end of 2019, moved into 2020, COVID arrived and COVID for all of its challenges that it had wrought for many people, it created an enormous potential and opportunity for me to create change in my life. And that's when I chose to leave my career in banking. And it was like, right, I feel different now. I feel like I can respond to what I'm feeling inside of myself from a different place. There's mm -hmm. a capacity that has been built in my nervous system relaxing in these contracted parts that were keeping me stuck, that were mm -hmm. stuck back in these maiden versions of myself, the possibility now of being able to release those, and they have been released, and now I can think more clearly. I'm more connected to myself in a way that I can choose something different. I can make choices that don't feel so frightening. Leaving my right. career doesn't feel so frightening anymore because I'm more connected to who I am. I feel more whole, more integrated mm. as the woman that I am now. But it took bringing those parts that had happened back then into the current day wholeness by being willing to turn towards them, feel them, and then integrate them. And all I can say from my own experience is that it's not as terrifying as we think it is when we don't know what's going on. I felt terrified of going there because I didn't know what I was going to feel. And yet right. turning towards it 
I mean, in this case, I didn't choose to turn towards it. I got knocked on the head and, you know, chose to Mm -hmm. fix that, but God guided this journey. If Mm. we can build our ability and our capacity to choose to turn towards these things that we're afraid of that happened to us once, we have such a big possibility of transmuting the past into something that can be healthy and whole in our current day lives, our current day age. You've said something that I've heard numerous times, and I want to see what your description of this is. If someone's willing to look back and uncover some of that stuff we've buried and those painful situations that we've lived through and just sort of put behind us, I can comprehend the concept of uncovering them and facing them. I can comprehend the concept of feeling. Tell me what you mean by integrating that. What does that mean in a practical way? Yeah, really, really good question because so often we live now in a culture of non-integration. We pick up our phones and we scroll and we're like, oh, that was a nice quote, scroll again, scroll again. We don't even pause to let the beauty of the quote that we've just actually acknowledged was beautiful settle into our being. We've got this attention deficit culture of just Mm -hmm. more, next, more, next. And, you know, so integration is dramatically lacking in our current day culture. And that then is mirrored back to us in our own personal development work is that big things happen to us. Culture says, just keep busy. I'm better when I'm busy. Keep going. So we don't fully allow for that experience to be felt. It's mirrored to us in the seasons as well. We plant in spring and spring grows into summer and then the leaves fall in autumn And then winter comes all the time. This barrenness of the winter, the darkness of the winter, the lack of life, the insular nature. But our culture is like, oh, I feel like I need a change because my summer's ending and my leaves are starting to fall into autumn. Let me quickly plan for spring and start something new. We're afraid of this vulnerability of the transition that Mm. requires us to go through a winter. Nature tells us we need to go through a winter. We need to go through this insular phase and listen to the wisdom that nature is showing us in order for us to fully allow the experiences of our lives to compost in a way into the fodder for this next spring. I was just going to say that, right? That's because that's what happens during the winter. All those leaves that fell in the fall, they're going to get covered over with the snow. They're going to break down and they're going to fertilize for the spring for that next period of renewal and growth. Thank you for that example. That's a nice practical Mm -hmm. one. And let's just say out loud in case somebody was taking us literally, it doesn't have to happen during winter. A winter internally can happen at any point in time. Yes. We can actually look at the seasons in every stage of our life. Mm -hmm. Our marriage might be in a summertime and our work might be in a wintertime or Mm -hmm. our children might be in a spring and our parents might be in their autumn. Mm -hmm. But when we bring the wisdom of nature into these cogs of our wheels, it's like suddenly we can kind of click it in and go, oh, wow, I'm not honoring the winter of this cycle that's happening. And how can I create space again? Create intentional space. Doesn't need to be all day, every day. But how can I create the intentional space to allow for that winter so that composting can happen and I can fully allow it to settle and integrate into my being? It's not Mm -hmm. about letting go. I'm always that people say, oh, you got to let things go. And I'm like, well, we can't really let go of anything because everything's a part of us. So mm-hmm. our experiences are all a part of us. It's not about letting go. It's about bringing it into wholeness for it to then feed the level of being and wisdom that we now have to respond to the next moment. 
letting it go for me feels like, oh, we're going to push it back into the shadow and just forget about right. it. Do you see right. what I mean? Yeah. So integration is not about that letting go. It's about being willing to go through the full cycle of the feeling to be able to integrate that back into our present moment without the tinge or the electric shock of pain that perhaps was associated with the experience, that kind of live wire that came as a result of whatever capital T trauma or little t trauma or experience Mm -hmm. that resulted in some kind of impact, that that live wire kind of diffuses through that and we can be with the experience. When I think about that experience of falling in the river, there's nothing happening in me. It's like, wow, I can look at it, go, thank you for that rather traumatic at the time, but incredibly insightful experience that has fed into this next cycle, which is absolutely aligned to who I am and where I'm going with my life now. Wonderful. So this is like five years of your life that you're going through this and you're working through some of these things. And this is what set you up to be excited about turning 40. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So that fall in the river came when I was 39, I think it was. And then that catalyzed a number of changes in my life, or actually it was 38, I can't quite remember, but catalyzed Mm -hmm. a number of changes, leaving my career. My husband and I moved from Sydney up to a beautiful town in northern New South Wales called Byron Bay. And all of those changes, all of those practical masculine changes created the possibility for me to drop more deeply into my feeling sense and into my feeling state of being. And with that came the possibility of being able to birth something new and that feels more aligned to who I am and where I am in my life and what I can now support other people and facilitate for other people to go through these inevitable transitions because life is all about these inevitable transitions from one stage of life to the next. It never stops. Growing is forever. So, you know, how do we do these inevitable transitions well and complete the whole cycle in that transition so that we don't have these ropes in the water continuously holding us back from the full potency of that next phase? Which brings us right back to this concept of rites of passage. And I was so interested in how you were describing your work with young people and rites of passage, and it resonated a lot with what I did when I turned 40. Some of the things you were describing, they were washing over me and my mouth was open a little bit like, oh, <laughs> it's things I, that I did unintentionally. Yeah, I love that. Stephanie, when I've learned more about you and I've listened to your podcasts and it's just been so fantastic to actually observe how some part of you, some really wise crone part of you created an intentional rite of passage for you, even though you at the time didn't even realize that that's what it was going to be. The adventure that you went on and its intention in the first instance, setting out to just do this wild adventure to then landing up 40 weeks later or one year later, having created a completely transformational experience for you that wasn't just for you, it was for your community. All those people that you met with along the line, rites of passage always involves community, always involves the telling of stories, the sitting together and telling stories, always involves the recognition of one another in that process, that honoring, always involves some kind of vision. And all of that came into your rite of passage without you even realizing. So I say, salute that part of Stephanie, who was so wise and clever to create such an extraordinary thing. And look at how that transformation has now transmuted into the creation 
creation of your podcast, in the creation right. of sharing stories that can potentially support other people to do these transitions well. So I, I applaud you and I applaud that intuitive capacity within you that did that for you. It's fantastic. I love your story. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I was listening to you talk about the the pieces of the the rites of passage and and it it was it was resonating with me that that I I didn't do any of that intentionally and in fact I've said if I had set out to do it I would have been scared or overwhelmed or would not have committed to it so for me the silliness of it was something that I could really attach myself to and the ridiculousness of it was something I, I felt really connected to. And so it it happened in spite of me. Like you're saying, there must have been some wise piece of me somewhere that, that bubbled it up and sent it to me fully formed. It is funny to hear you talk about the elements of a rite of passage and the fact that this checked so many of those boxes. And it did create an exceptional transformation. And and it continues. Here I am a decade later and doing this podcast and I feel like some of the things that you went through in your late 30s or even earlier than that, I'm going through now because every one of these conversations I have opens up an idea for me or or sends me thinking about something. I just finished a book that somebody else had, had recommended and it has opened up a whole new avenue for me. It's interesting that that transition, which did change my life completely, 10 years later, still continues to ripple out, throw the big stone into the middle of a quiet pond and watch the ripples. And a decade later, you know, the ripples are still quite significant. And that's the beauty of an incredibly potent transformation of an incredibly potent rite of passage is that it has the capacity to create lasting change not just for you, but for community as well. Mm -hmm. This is the wonderful aspect about bringing in the practices of the process of a rite of passage and how to do those well is that it's reaches, you know, a teacher never knows how far his or her reach will go within Mm -hmm. a student's life. And that's the the absolute magic of the rite of passage when done well is that it has long lasting effects for the individual and the community. My business is called The Frequency because I see that once these sort of gongs and the frequency have been made, these intentional gongs, is that that resounding frequency is there. It's there Mm -hmm. forevermore. So yeah, I'm super, super impressed with how that part of you created something extraordinary and how you've followed your intuition the whole way through. It's such an important trait in the feminine, both in men and women, but in our feminine side, this intuitive capacity, this intuitive knowing. And even if Stephanie at that age didn't know, the intuition within you guided something that was beyond your hand. Um, yeah. So yeah, well done for being able to listen, having the capacity to listen, you know, having the capacity to hear the call. And that is a big part of the first step is knowing that there is a call and being able to tune into it and be aware of it and hear, you know, even if for you and for me, it was messy. It's usually messy at first because you have no idea what the answer is going to be. And for a lot of people, this period this point where things are feeling like they don't fit or or they're feeling like you called it agitation or or dissatisfaction the solutions feel like well if i were to wave a magic wand the solution would be x y z a b c d e and f and it's so big that i can't even comprehend it so i think a lot 
myself included, you turn away from it because it just feels too big. And so yeah, tuning in and just being able to sit with it, once you can then follow a few steps through, you can move one thing and change Mm -hmm. everything. Everything, totally, yeah. And so much of it has got to do with our capacity, our capacity to be with the change, our capacity to be with the feelings of what we need to let go of, our capacity to be with the vulnerability of not perhaps knowing what's about to come. It's this capacity to be with the feeling experience of the transition that we haven't got in our current culture. I mean, we see how for so long, the feminine state of being within us, our feeling state of being, women have been told they're over-emotional and men have been told not to feel and they've been told to be man's man. And we can see as a result of that, this mental health crisis that we're in because we have not been taught how to feel. So this whole process of being able to build our capacity to be with our feelings And we can see it through all the stuff that comes through with conscious parenting. Conscious parenting is all about being able to acknowledge the child in their big feeling state of being. Not shut them down, tell them to stop crying, tell them to not shout, etc., etc. Obviously, we want to be able to create healthy avenues for them to express their big feelings. But how do we hold the space for these children to be with their big feelings? When we were children, we were just told children are seen and not heard. Fortunately, I had a very wonderful mother who supported me to learn how to feel possibly more than many people in the world. But many people have had very traumatic experiences when it comes to being with their big feelings as children. Mm -hmm. And therein lies part of our issues now showing up as adults is we don't know how to be with our big feelings, our big concerns over changes and transitions that are inevitable in our life, this growing older it's going to happen to all of us and yet we resist it even Mm -hmm. for me my best friend's 57 and she's going into sort of this elderhood stage of her life and it's wonderful to witness her approaching that elderhood stage of her life with grace and with Mm -hmm. power you know strong power she's moving in a healthy way through her stages of life which Mm -hmm. is supporting everybody around her her children her partner to also transition if we get stuck somewhere along the line then those coming up below us get stuck. You know, we have dads saying to daughters when they are entering adolescence, like, oh, you'll always be my little girl. And she's like, I'm not your little girl anymore. I'm a big girl now. You know, and it's like dad's got stuck in his relationship with his daughter and daughter's trying to progress. And we have relationship breakdown. Well, we used to talk so much. We used to be so close. It's like, oh, well, Dad, you haven't matured with me as I've grown. Mom's clinging on to sons or whatever's happening. The mother-son camp we run, which is 10 to 14-year-old boys and their moms. You know, there's a deep grieving process that needs to happen for mothers as their boys start venturing out. And so many mothers keep following their sons and their sons are going on their necessary rite of passage, leaving the tribe in their adolescence. Indigenous cultures always took their boys out and made them go out and do something on their own in order Mm -hmm. to be able to come back. And yet we don't have that practice in our Western culture, in our modern day culture. So we have moms that are following their boys and we hold these camps for these moms and sons. I mean, they're beautiful, extraordinary camps and very filled with a lot of grief. We create the space for these mothers to now feel the grief of their child transitioning into their young adulthood. And if they don't feel that grief, their grief will keep them clinging and clawing for their son and their son will keep moving further and further away from them. So to keep that healthy functioning 
of the family unit through those adolescent years, there has to be this possibility of maturation of the parent, of ability to feel these big feelings of grief and sadness as their children, as their little girls are changing, as their little boys are changing, and they're going out into the world to find themselves. It's an extraordinary wisdom that is inherent within these ancient practices of rites of passage that can give us so many tools, practical tools and possibilities of creating safe space for ourselves to go into the difficult feelings that we weren't taught, especially our generation and the generations above us weren't taught how to be with in a healthy way. We don't have the capacity to hold ourselves in that unsafety and mm. our communities don't necessarily create that safety for us. And that's where Rites right, of Passage right. for me has been such a beautiful experience because communities being the core value of Rites of Passage and being able to create that safety within the community so that those, I see it time and time again on the camps, the safety gets created and all of a sudden the wheels come off. The mothers cry and howl and share and resonate with one another and see one another in one another's story and feeling states of being. And they can really go there. And by the end of the camp, by the end of the rite of passage, they're coming out clearer, fresher, calmer, more accepting, more willing and able to be there with their transitioning son or daughter in a way that's supporting them in their next level of growth while reconnecting now in a mature relationship and one that's rooted now in the relationship of young adult and parent to a young adult. Wow. That's big stuff. Beautiful stuff. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Paula, I have just so enjoyed talking about this with you and you've awoken a couple of brain cells inside of me that now want to go and think and explore some things. I thank you so much for joining me today and talking about this and sharing your story. Oh, Stephanie, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for all the beautiful work that you do and sharing stories like this that can hopefully help a lot of people in their current moment. So I really do honor that. And thank you for having me on as a guest today. Thanks so much for listening today. This was a really magical conversation and I am now officially down the rabbit hole of rites of passages, trying to make sense of them from a midlife perspective. As I told Paula, a few of my brain cells have woken up curious about this concept and I am ready to explore. You know by now that my mission is to make it common cultural knowledge that there is a transition around age 40 and then showcase so many versions of that transition that every single person approaching 40 with dread in their heart knows that they are not alone, <laughs> that they are normal. This conversation with Paula has me thinking about creating safe spaces for people to process their feelings and transition into that next phase of life. It also inspired me to reorder a book that my career coach recommended to me, and I first read maybe 15 years ago. I think my original copy must have been loaned out at some point along the way. The book is called Transitions, Making Sense of Life's Changes. And I'm going to dig into that one soon. It's a couple of books down on my TBR pile, but I'm sure as I make my way through it, I'm going to have things that bubble up. So, and when I do, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to share those in emails. So if you're not already on my email list, head over to the website and get on it. All right. I think I might be working towards some sort of framework for moving through this period 
And Paula used two of my favorite words, with grace and ease. I know not everything is easy or graceful, but a lot of times, and especially if you're like me, we make things harder than they need to be. But Paula gave me an inkling that rites of passage could help us to come out clearer, fresher, calmer, and more accepting. And I want that for past me, and I want it for all of you who are approaching this season of your lives. So let's hope that that intuitive part of me that Paula congratulated for the original 40 Drinks Project is interested in collaborating with me on this burgeoning framework. (laughs) Okay, next week you're going to meet Lisa Petty, who calls herself a midlife alchemist, which I love, and I could stop right there, but it gets better. She says that women of her and my generation were fed a load of crap perpetu- uh, perpetrated by Helen Gurley Brown's seminal book, Having It All. While it may have been groundbreaking when it first came out in 1982, it quickly turned toxic. You Can Have It All went from an aspiration to a command, and instead, having it all meant doing it all. She says that's why women get to midlife and go WTF and realize that we are exhausted and miserable. And Lisa wants younger women to know that you don't have to have it all. You can be selective about what you choose. And she hopes that if we model different behavior, we can change the experience of midlife for younger women. This conversation, as you might imagine, and especially coming on the heels of Paula, is so up my alley and I cannot wait to share it with you. So I'll see you next week. The 40 Drinks Podcast is produced and presented by Savoir Faire Marketing Communications.